Okay, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and begin turning to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll read verses 14 through 21 in just a moment. I hope as we've gone through the book of Ephesians that the Lord, by His Spirit, is giving you a love for this, for this book. Um, he has for me, I told you at the very beginning, it was, it's my favorite book. And this is just confirming that and reaffirming some things in the gospel that have encouraged me greatly through this. So I hope, I hope it's doing the same for you. Just to recap, before we read what we're going to look at today, what has Paul been saying? Paul has been reminding his readers, which include us today, um, but specifically the, in the Ephesian churches, he's been reminding them about this great mystery that he finally revealed last week. And the mystery was that Gentiles as well as Jews can worship God together in the same church. That, in fact, is how Paul says that God is demonstrating and displaying his multifaceted wisdom to the world. Not just the world that we live in, but the, the spiritual realm. And it wasn't just that God was now changing who he was giving his promises to. Right? It wasn't that God took them from the Jews and put them on the Gentiles. It's that now Paul is redefining who God's people actually is. It's not just the Jews. It's not just those who've been circumcised by human hands. God's people is everyone who believe, regardless of their background. And so Paul then says at the end of the text that we read last week, he said, in his presence, in the presence of God, is where we have confidence, is where we have peace, and is where we have help in our time of need. And he, he mentions these words, boldness and access. Fellow Christian, you can boldly go to God's throne because of what Christ has done. You have access right to God. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through another human being. You can go straight to the Father. And Jesus Christ has accomplished that. We don't lose heart. That was the last thing that Paul said in verse 13. He says, so don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart because God has not lost his grip on you because he never will. So today's text, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, is actually like a transitional section. It ties the first half of the whole book of Ephesians together with the whole second half. So the first three chapters with the last three chapters, this one ties it together. The first three have been about who you are apart from Christ, but also who you are in Christ. And then the last three chapters that we'll talk about next week and going forward, Paul really starts to shift. Okay, here's who you were. Here's who you are now. What does that mean for how you live? So the next three chapters, how do we live? How are we supposed to live in Christ? And these verses that we're going to look at today, which is actually a prayer of Paul, they connect these two things together. What has been said and what Paul is getting ready to say in the next three chapters. So let's read together verses 14 through 21, and then we'll have a word of prayer and continue on. So let's read. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he might grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth 
and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as we see, this is for the praise of your glory. To you, to him be the glory through all generations. And so God, as we have gathered as the church, there are generations and generations here in this room together. And Lord, it is a beautiful thing to see the love of Christ, a desire for Christ to be passed down from generation to generation. Lord, by the strength of your power, may we desire you more and more. May we see your love revealed for us in Christ more and more. And may we move towards spiritual maturity more every day. Father, I pray these things for my brothers and sisters, and I pray these things for myself as well. We know that you're faithful to accomplish all of these things through Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Paul in this text, he, he moves right into, it's really his second intercessory prayer. If you remember, we already talked, he, he'd already prayed on behalf of the Ephesian Christians. This is his second intercessory prayer. And I, I think it points to two things that we need to remember. And they're ones that are not difficult to comprehend. But number one, we need to remember God's greatness. And we need to remember our need. God's greatness and our need are both revealed here. How many of you guys have, have asked God for you to be able to do his will in your life? I hope most of us would say, yes, I, I, we ask, we plead, God, allow me to do your will in my life. Do your will through me. If we really want that to be the case, we have to have his power to do it. We can't muster up enough strength. We can't be good enough. We have to have God's power to do God's will. So understanding who we are apart from Christ. Now Paul has helped us understand who we are in Christ then we're going to talk about who we're, how we're supposed to live. Those things are vastly important, but I think just as important, and maybe even more so, is a recognition of God's power if we're to live for Him with any kind of regularity or any kind of success in this Christian life. We have to live it by His power and understand that. So Paul begins this section by saying, you can see this in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He says, for this reason, well, for what reason? It's clear that whatever it is, it's, it's super important. So important that Paul is falling to his knees in worship because of it. So what, Paul, what drives Paul to his knees in this text? I think it's gratitude. What an appropriate thing for us to talk about the Sunday before Thanksgiving, right? Paul, after seeing all of these things that God has done for his children in Christ, he just falls to his knees in worship out of gratitude. Shouldn't that be our response? This time of year especially, if none other. Paul was stunned at God's grace in saving sinners individually, but also his grace in saving them corporately and uniting them corporately together. So if, if you've been saved, if you are one of God's children, I want to reflect on some things together. So reflect on these things with me. I think they're in your notes. Number one, God has called you out of your deadness. Just pause right here. I heard, I think it was R.C. Sproul said, 
It's not like God just threw you an inner tube, one of those life preservers out of the ocean. We like to think about it that way. He says, no, it's not like that. God dives to the depths of the ocean, pulls you up and breathes life into you. He doesn't just save you from the top of the waves. He dives down to the bottom of the ocean to bring you up. God has called you out of your deadness. He has adopted you as his child. He's redeemed you from the curse and the power of sin. And he's forgiven you all of your sin. He's forgiven you. Not only that, but Paul has already said to the Ephesians, he said he he has sealed you by his spirit. God has raised you with him, with Christ, and seated us with him as well. It says that we've already talked about in chapter 3, he's removed the separation between us and God. He's taken it away. He's also included us in his church. He's made us a part of it. He's made us a part of his family. Now look, I, I realize that, that times are tough. Sometimes we don't have a lot of money in the bank. Sometimes our family dynamic is just in ruins. Sometimes we don't have the friendship that we desire. Sometimes life just isn't how we expected it to be, right? I think most of us can identify with that kind of a thought. But in that moment of life not matching what we expected it to be. I just want to repeat and encourage you with what Paul said at the end of verse 13. Do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Go back and think about those things we just reflected on. In all reality, in eternity, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or how many friends you have here. What matters is that you've been saved by the blood, forgiven by Jesus Christ. And so we have these assurances. We have these guarantees We don't lose heart because of those things. God has loved you with an everlasting love that cannot be broken and it can't be darkened by the things of this world. The Lord took me to Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah at this point in my study. If you remember, Jeremiah preached for 40-something years and there's only two recorded converts of his in that that long of a time. And he spoke to to God's people and they, they wouldn't listen. But in a... In a refresh, I would have thought a very refreshing and eye-opening text in Jeremiah 31. It's God speaking to the people of Israel, and He's saying in just incredible things. And you know, we've we've already talked last week about how in Galatians Paul has said, "If you are in Christ, you are one of Abraham's seed; you are a child of God." And so these promises, these things that God says through Jeremiah, are for you too. And I want you to hear them. So that we do not lose heart. They come from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the Lord speaking to his people. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. With weeping, they shall come. And with pleas for mercy, I'll lead them back. I'll make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel. I'll turn their mourning into joy. I'll, conf- I'll comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. For I'll satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. I don't know if you needed to hear that this morning, but those are promises of God for his people. But I want us to notice who's doing all of this. It's God. Just look back. It's your notes. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. 
I will lead them back. I will make them walk by water. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will replenish them. God is doing all of these things. And who's he doing it for? His people. Those whom he loves. His sons and his daughters. And then in verse 33 of the same passage, you may have heard this one before. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. We know probably some Old Testament history at least. Israel didn't come before God and plead with Him to be His people. They didn't come and say, God, please let us be Your people. Did they? Most of the time it was the exact opposite. They're shaking their fists in His face and running as far away. Wandering in the desert for 40 years. Because they didn't want to listen to Him. They didn't want to submit themselves to Him. They just rebelled constantly. But what, is, what does God say in verse 9 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah? He says, with pleas of mercy, I will lead them back. He's faithful to do that. And I just want to point out, just look in your Bible at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 again. God, through Jeremiah, said, with pleas of mercy, I will lead them back. What, what specific word does Paul use in verse 4? He says, but God being rich in mercy. This is, these are guarantees for his people, brothers and sisters. I hope that it's abundantly clear at this point that your salvation is not due to your work. It's not due to your effort. Your salvation, every blessing of God is yours because of Christ. It's yours in Christ Jesus because of God's sovereignty and his mercy in your life. It's not a result of works. It's a gift of the spirit that you simply receive. Think about this today, not out loud, don't answer this out loud, but just ask, why would God set his affection on you? Why would he do that? Is it because you've performed well? Is it because you're just a good person? Is it because you wear the right clothes or carry the right Bible? Why would God set his affection on you? Would it, could it be because God peered down through time and knew that you were going to trust Jesus so he you know, decided to give his love to you? No. It can't be that way. Paul has already disregarded that kind of theology at the beginning of chapter 2. He said, no, you were dead. You weren't just floating on the, on the ocean, drowning. Like you were totally drowned, waterlogged at the bottom of the ocean. And God in his mercy reached down and picked you up and breathed life into you. God sets his affection on sinners because of the great love with which he loved them. Because of his love for them. And this, I believe, is the exact reason why Paul falls to his knees in worship at this point in chapter 3. It's almost like he just can't even stand anymore. This realization of God's love and undeserved kindness has just driven him to his knees to worship and to pray. Now, I think we get this, but just to remind ourselves of this, prayer is not like whacking a pinata and God's blessings just, you know, shoot all over us. Okay? That's, that's not what prayer is. Prayer, I believe, oftentimes, most of the time, is prompted by worship. In fact, I think prayer and worship, they go hand in hand and they're usually very closely intertwined. 
They're mixed up together. And I think it's clear here from Paul's example. Now, kneeling is not the only appropriate posture when it comes to worshiping. I'm not saying that when we sing next week, everyone needs to be on their knees in worship. But I, I wouldn't say you'd be wrong to do that. Sometimes I think it is appropriate. When you've watched movies before where there's some great tragedy and the person who's affected by it the most, what do they do oftentimes? They just drop to their knees. It's like they don't have the strength to stand. Sometimes in worship, we ought to be the same. Now, Craig read from Psalm 95 this morning, talking about the sheep of his pasture. It says, let us kneel before our Lord, our maker. Paul says it this way. If you look at verse 15 in chapter 3, he says that we should kneel before the Father whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Everybody. This is an expression of the Father's authority and rule over everyone, over everything, over every person. It's a call, I think, to bow our knees before sovereign God. The God who knows everyone has just told us what he's done in Christ for us. Our text today is Paul showing us what it's like to pray in view of God's greatness and our great need. Those are those two things I said at the beginning that is revealed in this text. God's greatness and our need. We are helpless and powerless without God. And Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 really drove that point home. But another illustration I thought would be helpful uh, is, is a poem or a little writing called Palm Monday. You all know what happened on Palm Sunday. Jesus gets on a donkey and he goes through the streets of Jerusalem and they throw palm branches at him and they're worshiping him and they say, Hosanna, the son of David. So here's a story. The donkey awakened, his mind still savoring the afterglow of the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he felt such a rush of pleasure and pride. He walked into town and found a group of people by the well. I'll show myself to them, he thought. But they didn't notice him. They went on drawing their water and paid him no attention. Hmm. Throw your garments down, he said crossly. Don't you know who I am? They just looked at him in amazement. Someone slapped him across the tail and ordered him to move. Miserable heathens, he muttered to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They'll remember me. The same thing happened. No one paid attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street in front of the marketplace. The palm palm branches. Where are all the palm branches? He shouted. Yesterday, when I came down this street, you threw palm branches. Hurt and confused, the donkey returned home to his mother, who so very caringly says, Foolish child, don't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? Our need is great. And Jesus himself says in John chapter 15, he says, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, the donkey was just an ordinary donkey. Now, I think this is intended to humble us, but I hope it actually encourages us at the same time because here, if we know that if we're really operating in the spirit, ministry actually will happen. Because if we're with Christ, we have his power within us. God uses weak and needy people to accomplish his purposes, doesn't he? I mean, you look at almost every chapter in the Bible and we see that played out. There's a biblical principle here, and it's this. If you believe that your need of a Savior is very little, 
then your need is actually very great. If you think you only have a small need, your need is actually very great. It's very big. God opposes the proud, James says in chapter 4, verse 6, but He gives grace to the humble. So the question that I asked before, why would God choose to set His affection on you? How you answer that question, I think will tell whether you're currently being resisted by God or whether you're receiving His grace. Why would God set His affection on you? Is it because of how good you are? No. If that's your attitude, you're being resisted by God in your arrogance. But if you say, I need Jesus more every day, and you humble yourself before Him, God gives grace upon grace. So now, in light of the riches of God's glory, in verse 16, Paul prays that believers would be strengthened with the power of His Spirit. How? In their inner being. In their inner being. I think this is important, and I think it's obvious that this is where we really need our strength, isn't it? In our inner being. The world sees and wants demonstrations of power to be outward, though. So we get excited, and our culture gets excited about the real big, muscly football player and the basketball player with the huge wingspan that can, like, dunk standing flat-footed. And we get all pumped up about the sprinter who's got the big leg muscles that can break the world records. Because we love to see outward demonstrations of power. They fascinate us. But this isn't the kind of power that Paul is referring to in the least bit here. He says we need power in our inner being. Our bodies are wearing out, brothers and sisters. And the older that we get, the more we see that and the harder that it is. I mean, we can't do what we used to be able to do. That's just a fact of life. No one is immune from that kind of a thing. While our bodies are weakening, your inner man, your inner being can actually be strengthened more and more. You've seen this played out in some faithful saints who have grown in their bodies to be weak and just almost can't even move. And yet when you go and you speak to them, you went to encourage them and you're lifted up. Paul prays for strength for our inner being here because that's what needs to be renewed by the Spirit. Paul talks about the the inner man often in his writings. We need this because the inner man, the inner being, that's where we fight sin, isn't it? We don't take up literal swords to fight against sin. We take it up in spiritual battle. And so Paul is saying the inner being needs to be strengthened for this because that's where we fight sin That's where we gather courage to actually proclaim the gospel. And this is where we find strength and power to love people the way that Jesus did. Because without his power in us, we can't do any of those other things. Paul goes right on then in verse 17 to tell us why we need to be strengthened by the Spirit in the inner being. He says, first off, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, the word dwell here, I just want to focus on for a second. This refers to a permanent resident, not a short-lived one. It actually almost literally means to settle down. How many of you guys like watching those fixer-upper type shows? My wife's the first one with her hand up. That's, That's a big thing now. I mean, home and garden TV is just nonstop reruns of renovation shows. Uh, There are some that are good. There are some that are not so good. But Nikki and I like to, we like to watch those things. Uh, It can be an expensive habit to watch those shows. 
because then you think your house needs to look like that. A lot of those shows, they focus on fixing these homes up just so they can flip them and, and turn a profit, right? And so when, when these people do this, when the people that are renovating these, show, these homes, they paint the walls neutral colors. They usually always put in a solid white kitchen. They do things that appeal to the most amount of people, right? To the, the things that appeal to the masses. Uh, there are, though, a few shows that renovate homes for specific families, for specific people. And their approach is a lot different. If you notice, um, they they usually start with a home that's in pretty bad need of repairs. And they they don't want to just make the house look like everybody else's. They want to do things that are specific to the family and to their needs. And so they factor in how many bedrooms they need for the kids, how many bathrooms they need. They factor in what kind of colors the family likes. They factor in what is uh, important to the family so they can add those things in to the homes as they're renovating them. Now, if you own your home, you probably do the same thing, right? You, you put things in there that you like. You put things in that are specific to you. So, if, so I did something this week. I took a camera to some of your homes so that I'm just joking. I didn't do that, but I wanted to see your eyes get all wide. Because if we, if I said, I'm going to your house to videotape, you'd be like, give me three hours to clean first. Uh, but if we went through your homes, we could find out pretty easily what kind of colors you like. We could find out what things your family enjoys doing together. We could find out if you're kind of more informal or more formal. And we could find out what's just generally important to you overall. So D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, when a person takes up long-term residence somewhere, their presence eventually characterizes that dwelling. We're going somewhere with this. Let's connect this to our text. What should be dwelling in our hearts? The things of this world? No. Christ should be dwelling in our hearts. So D.A. Carson continues. He says, when Christ, by his spirit, takes up residence in us, He sets about turning this residence into a place appropriate for him, a home for which he is comfortable. When Christ first moves into our lives, he finds us in bad repair. It takes a great deal of power to change us, and that's why Paul prays for power. Christ is transforming us into a house that more and more reflects his own character. Does Jesus dwell in your heart that way today? Have you given him free reign to change things around as he sees fit? Or have you given him a list of things that he's allowed to change, but he's supposed to leave all the other stuff alone? Christ dwelling in the hearts of believers, it's not a temporary thing. It's permanent. And he's going to stay with our renovation idea. He's going to knock down walls. He's going to rip up flooring He's going to change things to make it more comfortable for him, not for you, not for me. This is how we comprehend, I think, the bigness of God's love for us. When we give him full access, when we give him creative control over our lives and everything in it, then we start to see God for who he really is because we haven't then wedged him into this box of, okay, you can be this kind of a way for me in this area, but here you can't touch it. 
This is how we come to know, Paul says, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of his love. There's nothing there that Paul left out. It's all, it's all wrapped up in those four things. Paul's talking about the completeness of the love of God. When we give up control to the one who's already in control of it, that's when we see the trueness of God's love. Can we ever hope to fully know God's love for us, the fullness of it? Yeah, I think so. You know how? We look at Jesus. We look at the Son. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. We can know God's love for us, I'm convinced, but not without the Spirit of God Himself. Isn't it interesting that God would do it that way? That he wants us to know him, but we have to have his spirit in order to do that. If I hand, or if you handed a three-year-old a $100 bill, will they appreciate it for what it is? Maybe some of them might, I don't know. I don't think ours would. They would look at it and they would say, oh, neat. And they'd probably color on it. And they'd probably take some safety scissors to it and try to cut things out, they would not appreciate it for what it is. But if you give a, if you give a 13-year-old a $100 bill, I guarantee you they know what to do with it, right? There's no question in their mind. You know, you know why they know? Because they've been taught the value of $100. Because they see how much things are worth when their family goes shopping, and they know the value of a $100 bill. Without God teaching us through His Word, through the church and through his spirit, we would never know the real value of his love. We would never know the full value of his love if it weren't for the spirit. But in and through those things, God's spirit, his word, the church, in and through those things, we can begin to comprehend how Paul is describing it and what he's talking about here. It takes the power of the spirit to allow us to know the fullness of God's love for us. We have to have the power of his spirit to know God's true love. Verse 17 says that it's God's love that we must be rooted and grounded in. We're supposed to be like trees rooted in it. These roots, they can't just be surface. Because when the, when the moisture of the surface dries up, what happens to the plant? What happens to the tree? It withers and dies. And so our roots must go much deeper than the surface where water and nutrients don't dry up, where we're constantly sustained. But the reality is our religion is oftentimes pretty dry and pretty shallow and not as deep as it ought to be. Just think about this. How many times have you walked into church holding up the typical Christianity mask and somebody comes to you and they say, hey, how you doing? And you say, I'm fine. And you put up the mask. Or somebody says, hey, I'm really struggling with this. Would you pray for me? And you put up the mask and you say, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. And you pat them on the shoulder. And you put up the mask of Christianity. That's not deep faith. That's shallow belief. That is surface Christianity. And it's one that we're all guilty of, for sure. But that doesn't mean it's okay to keep doing. If we're ever going to be able to comprehend the fullness of God's love... The power of the Spirit has to make us firmly rooted and grounded in Christ. 
That's how we soak it up. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. We do this, we soak it up, we're rooted and grounded in Christ together. Notice that. Paul says, with all the saints. Our Christianity, I believe, goes deeper when we understand God's love together. In the context of the local church, when we are loving one another the way that Christ would have us, we understand God's love for us better. When I love my kid better, they understand God's love for them better. He absolutely shows us his love individually. He calls us out. He doesn't call us out as couples or as families or as nations. He calls us out individually. But his love for us is clearly seen in the context of the local church. And so that's why Paul just finished saying, remember, it's through the church that God's manifold wisdom is made seen. Now we soak this all up. We're grounded and rooted in Christ with all the saints. This is a together kind of a thing. God clearly expresses his love by uniting Gentiles and Jews to himself and to one another. This is a demonstration of God's love for his people. It's a demonstration of God's love for this church that there's a person sitting next to you. In verse 20 and 21, it's almost like Paul just can't seem to contain himself any longer. I love it when he gets to this point. He's, it's almost like he's bursting from understanding the sovereignty and, and love and power of God. And as I, as I read verse 20 this week, let me read it again. And I'll tell you what God brought to my mind. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think. As I read that this week, it was, I felt like it was almost as if Paul is daring you as the reader. Paul is daring you. Think of something that you don't think God can do. And he's going to do it. So in, in your own life, think of something. There's something there. I, I understand that. What is something that you just have hoped and prayed for for a long time that God would do and it hasn't happened yet? What, what would that be? Think of the thing that you pray for the most that if God would just intervene, it would make you happier than anything. And Paul says that thing, God's able not only to do it, but to do far more than that. So let me ask you this. Do you believe that God is sovereign overall? Most of us would say yes. God is sovereign overall. So do we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and placed everything under his feet? Probably most of us would say yes. Does that include your life, your son or daughter, your family, this church, our nation? Are all of those things under Christ's feet as well? Are they under his authority? I think most of us would say yes. If you answer yes to those things, and if you believe this, you can pour out your heart to God because he's able to do far more abundantly than anything you could even think or ask. If his authority filters down over all, why would we not ask him? Why would we not believe that he can do these things that we've waited for him to do? Keep asking, keep waiting, and do not lose heart. I think we need a vision of God that increases our faith in his greatness. You understand what I mean by that? We need to see God for who he really is 
so that it spurs us on to further faith, to deeper faith in his greatness. I think Paul is helping us get to that point through these verses. God does this according to the power that's at work within us, he says. In verse 16, he says, what power is it? It's the power of the Spirit. So the power that is at work within believers is the power of his very Spirit. And I would say that the emphasis here is on the power and not on us. Even though it's the power that's within believers in us, the emphasis here is on the power. And yet Paul intentionally says, is it work within us? And so we have to be reminded of the fact that God does extraordinary things through ordinary people all the time. God does extraordinary things through ordinary people by his power that's at work within them. The emphasis is on his power and not on them. But God is absolutely at work among his people and he's at work through his people. You see what I mean? He's at work here among his people. But he also works through you in your individual contexts, where you go to school, and where you go to work, and where you go out to eat. God works through you. And I know everyone here is saying, I'm just an ordinary person. That's who God uses. You're in good company. Look at verse 21. Paul then tells us why. Why does God do this? Why does God give us his power? It's for his own glory. To him be glory in the church and in Christ. God pours out his love and gives his power so that his name might be praised. That's why he does this. In you and in the church, God desires his glory. He says, Paul says, in the church and in Christ Jesus. John Stott says, God desires glory in the bride and in the bridegroom, in the community of peace and in the peacemaker. It's not a temporary thing either, brothers and sisters. This is a permanent thing. Paul says there at the end of chapter 3, he says it's going to last forever. Throughout all generations, he says, don't lose heart. God is going to be glorified by his people forever. It has always been that way. God is glorified in His Son, Christ Jesus, forever. There has never been and never will be a time when God is not acknowledged and seen for who He really is. My question for you today, for us today, would be, do we actually see Him for who He truly is? There's always people that do. Are you one of them? Do you see Him as the sovereign and wise ruler of all? If you answer yes to that and those questions of was Christ risen and everything put under his feet, if you say yes, remember that that means that the, even the worst thing that's happening in your life right now is not beyond his control. Does that cause you to stiffen your neck against him like it did the Israelites? Or like Paul, does that drive you to your knees? That's the real question to seeing God's sovereignty, to seeing his deep love for us, does it stiffen our necks in in saying things like, well, I could be good enough. I don't need him to do that for me. Or why didn't he save that person? Or why hasn't he done this? Does, Does God's sovereignty cause us to stiffen our necks or does it cause us to drop to our knees in worship? I I pray, I hope for myself and for our church that we get 
a clear picture this morning, that we have seen that and get a realization of who God is and what he's done for believers in Christ. And I pray that it drives us to our knees in worship and in prayer. As we pray and as we sing one more song together, I hope that you'll use that time as a time of reflection to think about what God has showed us this morning in these things. And are we truly, have we given him creative control in our lives? Is he setting up, is he knocking down walls and setting up our lives as he would have them? Or are we wrestling him for control? Let's pray together. Lord, we want to see not only our great need, Lord, but your greatness, your goodness, the height of your love, the depth of your love, the width of your love, all of the completeness of your love, Lord, we want to understand. But that only happens through your spirit. And so we pray, Father, that your spirit would be poured out on this church. Not so that we get a name in the community for anything, except that we love Jesus and that he's here and that we would go out as ambassadors of Christ reminding people that he has removed the dividing wall between God and man. Everything that's necessary for salvation, he has already accomplished. And I pray that many would believe because of what we have to say in our community, in our families. God, we pray for your power as Paul did, that it would enlighten our minds to the truth of your love for us and that that would change the way that we live, that that would change us. We thank you for Christ We thank you for all that he has accomplished on our behalf. And I pray, Father, that we would turn to him in obedience and faith today for the first time or all over again, Lord, so that you might be glorified in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.